Hello, everyone, and welcome to Stories of the Second World War. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Allen Butler, internationally recognized military and maritime historian, best-selling author, and a popular guest speaker, having given presentations at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and aboard several well-known cruise lines. He is the author of many wonderful books, including Shadow of the Sultan's Realm, The Destruction of the Ottoman Empire, and the Creation of the Modern Middle East, and The Burden of Guilt, How Germany Shattered the Last Days of Peace in Summer 1914. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. No, this is my pleasure. I'm, I'm really excited to be here speaking with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Likewise, likewise. It's, it's an absolute pleasure. So our topic of discussion today is actually your most recent book, if I'm not mistaken, or at least one of your books, which is called Field Marshal, The Life and Death of Erwin Rommel. Now, Rommel is someone who really needs no introduction when talking about World War II like we are today or German military history in general. You know, I think that when talking about World War II, it's really difficult to have an appropriate understanding unless you first understand the First World War. So Rommel being the brilliant military leader that he was got his start during the Great War. So what did that look like? Sort of his first taste of combat, if you will. Rommel had uh, a, a rather exciting uh peculiar word. He had a fairly exciting career in the uh, First World War, and he was spared much of the uh, the monotony and horror of the Western Front and the trench warfare that characterized that ongoing stalemate. Uh, he initially uh, served in a, uh, a Württemberg unit that was part of the uh, left wing of the Schlieffen plan. Uh, moved into Luxembourg and uh, eastern Belgium, uh, saw some action there, and then was transferred south uh, to the German left, uh, not too far from the border, and it was a fairly static, uh, almost a live-live sort of existence for both the French and the German forces on that front. The, the real action was happening to the north uh, in Belgium, uh, territory ver where the British and the Germans were engaging in their first slugfests. The French were trying to stage offensives to drive the Germans out. Uh, the French had a very, very, I would say peculiar, but they had a very distinct attitude towards the, uh, the presence of German forces on French soil, German occupation. Uh, they, they treated the French, they, they treated French soil almost as if it were sacred and as if it were a holy duty to drive the Germans out of, of France. In the South, where Rommel was stationed until uh, early 1916, uh, there was very, very little going on. And it was in the East when the, uh, Russians started mounting a continuous series of offensives against the Austrians, uh, Austro-Hungarian army, and uh, the, the German forces that the necessity for organizing a dedicated mountain division or mountain forces, uh, these were, were units initially of battalion strength that were organized into regiments and into brigades and divisions. Uh, who specialized in mountain warfare. They knew, uh, they, they were trained and experienced to uh, use the terrain to their specific advantage, both in offense and defense, to move quickly and quietly. Uh, and 
his, their their mission was to initially to stop uh, the uh, Russian advances into Austro-Hungarian territory. The Austrian army was kind of half-hearted in its in its war effort. There was a uh, there was a lot of I don't want to say political dissension, but among some of the uh, some of the minorities within the empire who were serving in the Austro-Hungarian army, there was a distinct lack of enthusiasm. Uh, for uh, the the Austro-Hungarian prosecution of the war, and these units, uh, unex- not unexpectedly, performed poorly uh, when in combat. So the Germans were compelled to bolster the German effort, and Rommel was uh, part of the original uh, Württemberg uh, Mountain Division that was sent to the Eastern Front uh, with the intent of uh, really acting as a backstop for the Austrian Austro-Hungarian forces. He spent the better part of two years uh, on the Eastern Front in the mountains, uh, in the Carpathian Mountains primarily, in Romania um, and uh, Eastern Hungary. It was there that he developed what would become his really unique combat style. Let me explain what I mean by combat style. For starters, Rommel learned the lesson of leading by example and leading from the, leading from the front, he would not sit back at a headquarters uh, several hundred yards, thousand yards, several kilometers to the rear of where the fight was going on and try and direct the trying to direct the action. He would be at the front line, rifle in hand, leading his troops. Now he started out as a lieutenant, so lieutenants are expected to lead by example or at least lead from the front. Uh, but a lieutenant who is actually at times taking the point, the lead man in an attack or in a patrol or in an advance, and if not taking the point, at least part of the lead element, was something unusual in those days, not just in the German army, but in most ar- most armies of the time. Rommel found that he thrived uh, under fire. He thrived in action. He could best exert his leadership talents uh, by being at the point of attack. And he also understood that uh, movement and the application of movement to affect an enemy's psychology was often every bit as successful in terms of results as it is actual uh, exchange of fire and uh, the, the application of casualties. This was a lesson that he would carry on into the Second World War, where he was very often content to strike a psychological blow at an enemy, demoralized enemy by appearing on a flank or in rear, completely unexpected, uh, and in the process defeat larger, sometimes better armed and equipped uh, opponents simply through his use of, of movement and his understanding of the, the psychological effect of his appearance in an unexpected quarter uh, that would have on the enemy's thinking and their ability to, uh, to continue fighting. His best-known exploit in the First World War um, was at the Battle of Caporetto, uh, uh, specifically the village of Lannon, where he won the Pour le Marie, the German uh, army's uh, highest award for valor, and he he wound up with a comparative handful of men taking over a thousand prisoners, uh, capturing several several artillery batteries, uh, securing what was considered to be an impregnable Italian division. Now, by this time, we're talking 1918. Um, the, uh, the the German Mountain battalions had been transferred to the Italian front because the Austrian army, who had been the Italian primary opponent, 
they were beginning to run out of troops and their morale was starting to become increasingly fragile. So the Germans were, uh, were acting as not just physical, but moral reinforcement. So Rommel is, is facing the Italian troops for the first time. The Italian troops admittedly were not, uh, they were not well led. They were intelligent. They were brave. They were capable. They were not incompetent by any stretch of the imagination, but they, their leadership was sorely lacking. Rommel exploited this. Uh, he was able to conduct a series of surprise attacks on a number of Italian positions. And again, primarily through the, uh, through the very simple use of movement and the very precise application of firepower, uh, was able to defeat much, much larger forces. These were all lessons that he, uh, learned and distilled and would later uh, apply in the Second World War, most particularly against the French in May and early June of 1940, and then against the British in uh, in Western Desert 1941 to 1943. He also took his experiences and wrote what he intended to be an infantry manual uh, that was published in, if memory serves, off the top of my head, 1937 or 1938, called Infantry Greift Infantry in the Attack. And he used his experiences in World War II to uh, explain and illustrate how the careful combination of movement and fire could produce tactical results and ultimately strategic results on the battlefield, all in proportion to the size of the forces engaged. And it really was a handbook for how he would wind up uh, fighting his campaign, his battles, his campaigns in the Second World War. Now, interestingly enough, Rommel turned out to be a very, very good writer in his own right. And the book, when edited for uh, the popular reader, wound up becoming a bestseller. And it it didn't make uh, Rommel an ind- independently wealthy man, but allowed it, it, it gave him a continue a comfortable income that continued right up until his death in uh, October of 1945, or excuse, uh, excuse me, October 1944. Wow, that's fascinating. And I think that's something that really defines certainly Rommel as a military leader and as a warrior, but also the German army during the first stages of World War II with the Blitzkrieg, this idea of moving fast and hitting hard. And uh, it's not really about the quantity of men you have, uh, but it's really about strategy. So I think that's something that is very essential to Rommel's character. Now, one thing that I am very interested to hear your take on is, you know, after his successful military career in World War I, as Germany went through this massive transition, Hitler and the Nazis rising to power, how was Rommel's military career affected? Um, was he very excited that Hitler was the Fuhrer? Or was he a little reluctant to take up arms in the name of Nazi Germany? This is really a particularly complex issue. Noah, so forgive me if I take uh, maybe an inordinate amount of time to, uh, to, to, to go into this. First of all, remember that under the Treaty of Versailles, the German army was limited to a maximum strength of 90,000 men, or, uh, that is 90,000 enlisted men and 10,000 officers. To, so it was a professional force, wound up by default becoming a professional force, uh, simply out of necessity. The, uh, the, the officers and who were selected uh, for service in the Reich, the, the, the German army as allowed under the, the Treaty of Versailles, 
were all picked not simply because they were good soldiers at whatever level they were currently serving, but also for their leadership. The enlisted and the privates were selected because they were viewed as having the potential to become NCOs. The NCOs were selected because they were viewed as having the potential to become become junior officers. Junior officers were selected because uh, they were seen as having the potential to become senior officers if and when the day came that the Reichswehr would expand into a larger army. It was the Reichswehr was to be the skeleton on which the larger army, larger German army, would someday be built. So for Rommel to be selected as one of those very few officers, comparatively speaking, was a tremendous testimony to not only the ability that he demonstrated, but how he was perceived by senior officers and the potential that was seen in him. During the the uh, 20 years between the imposition of the uh, Treaty of Versailles on Germany and the uh, beginning of the Second World War, now, let me qualify something here. I say the imposition of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, the treaty was ratified by Martin at the time. It was, in a sense, really no choice. But it was known um, with Germany as being a diktat, an ultimatum. The only choice the Germans had was to sign on the dotted line or face a re- literally face a resumption of hostilities uh, with an army that was in tatters and was not equipped to uh, resist the overwhelming strength of the Allies, the, the Germans, the French, or excuse me, the, the French, the British, and the Americans uh, it, as they existed in 1919. This was a, an attitude that persisted in um, Germany uh, throughout that 20-year period. The, the, the catchphrase had it that the Treaty of Versailles left the Germans verlos, hirlos, und erlos, that is, without power, without an army, and without honor. So one of the things that is very often overlooked in, the, in describing and analyzing the rise of Adolf Hitler to power with him, the Nazi party, and then the imposition of the Nazi regime, is that Hitler made the Germans relevant in the world again. Germany had been reduced uh, by the by the, the, the Versailles Treaty to, uh, at best, a third or even fourth-rate power. She allowed no air force. She was allowed a hundred thousand-man army that could not that was not permitted to develop or deploy tanks. Uh, the largest piece of artillery that was allowed to the, the, the Reichswehr was 155 millimeters. Uh, the uh, German Navy was reduced to six battleships and a handful of cruisers, all of which were not just pre-World War I, they were pre-Dreadnought, that is, they were pre-1905. They were two generations obsolete. It wasn't even a glorified coast art. The whole of the Versailles Treaty was to make sure that the Germans would never again threaten the peace of Europe. Well, it was also a massive insult to the to, to the German people, and they took it as such. Uh, and Hitler, when he came to power and began to expand the Reichswehr and change the name of the Reichswehr, uh, which means essentially Reich's defense force, into the Wehrmacht. Now, German word Wehrmacht literally translated means the making of power, Wehr, power, Macht, to make. And 
in translation, it translates to armed forces. But in German, Wehrmacht has a very strong and virile connotation to it. He then he also introduced the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, which they had the Germans had been denied, and he expanded the Kriegsmarine. He 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 went from uh, the Reichsmarine, which is the uh, the National Navy, to the Kriegsmarine, the wartime navy. All of this was very carefully calculated psychologically to appeal to the Germans who had felt as though they had been marginalized. They, they were no longer relevant. A nation that prior to 1914 had arguably the second largest economy in the world, uh, one of the most powerful armed forces in the world, the, in 1914, the second largest and most powerful navy in the world. And five years later, uh, they have nothing. They're, Germany now, in 1919, and there is immediately subsequent, Germany doesn't count for anything in uh, the, the court of world opinion. What Germany wants, what Germany desires, what Germany's goals are, are completely irrelevant as far as the rest of the world. Hitler changed that, and it was a massive part of his appeal to the German people. And in some ways... It's caused many of the Germans to overlook the beginnings of the excesses of the Nazi regime, what became the Third Reich. Um, even that name, Third Reich, the Third Empire, which is what Reich rightly translates as empire, was very, very appealing to the Germans. So bringing this home to Rommel specifically, he was typically apolitical. Politics did not immerse him. They really didn't concern him. He, as far as his personal political leanings, he would be today a, a centrist, maybe even leaning a little bit to the left of center. But politics was a very minor part of his life. His profession was more important. And he saw the stature of his profession both materially and notionally rising under the Third Reichs. And again, this is hard for a lot of people to, uh, to, to fully comprehend. We know how the Third Reich ended. We know what the Nazis did. We know what the Germans under the Nazis did, that there were so many of them who were willingly complicit in what the, the, the Nazis' ideological and racial objectives were. However, in 1933, in 1934, 35, 36, all of that lay in the future. No one knew what was going to happen. No one knew the concentration camps, the Endlosung, the war, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Einsatzkommando uh, were, were going to happen. None of that was preordained, predestined. Uh, so... There was there the, the, whatever foreshadowing existed was very very faint, and you had to have a very vivid imagination and a particularly dark turn of imagination to imagine that this man who was putting Germany back, who was putting Germany back on the map globally, so to speak, that making Germany count again in the councils of the world, reviving the economy, give the Germans back their national pride, uh, that this only goes south and end horribly. In uh, a level of destruction wreaked upon that no one could imagine. I do, however, try to make the point very strong, very, as strongly as possible that hindsight is 2020, foresight is purely blind. And no one in 1933, 34, 35, 36 
really right up until 1939, nobody truly knew what was coming. They may, have, they may have suspected it, but they really didn't know. There was no way they could have known. Crystal balls, last time I checked, are really, really rare. And so being able to look into the future and accurately predict it is something that is not given to, nor, to, to ordinary humans. Rommel didn't see any of this. He saw a man who was reviving a German who had, uh, or Germany rather, that had been humiliated. Now, in my book, Field Marshal, Life and Death of Erwin Rommel, I make a point that, uh, in, in fact, to be, to be blunt about it, I open the first chapter by saying Erwin Rommel was a German. Now, deceptively simple and self-evident, this single fact would be found at the core of all that would define him as a man. He would be many things in his lifetime, dutiful son, diligent student, would-be inventor, clandestine lover, determined loyal husband, devoted father, apt instructor, aspiring aviator, best-selling author, and above all, dedicated soldier and brilliant field commander. But overarching all these achievements was the defining essential truth for Rommel's life and his death. He was a German. He was a patriot. So Rommel saw the appeal of Hitler's actions to him as a patriot. So he basically like so many other Germans, went with the flow. He didn't suspect that Rommel would, or excuse me, that Hitler would become a monster. It wasn't until late 1943-1944 that he began to understand what a monster Hitler had morphed into. So uh, Rommel's career initially progressed fairly slowly during the war period. Uh, he was a major until uh, until 1938. He was then promoted to colonel. He wasn't promoted to a to general. Uh, rank until 1939 after the war began. Uh, and then he, because he appealed to Hitler, uh, he was in command of a panzer, which he then led in France in 1940 and led it brilliantly. Uh, so he, the, the case can be made that Rommel, um, yes, Rommel benefited from, uh, from Hitler ri Hitler's rise to power. At the same time, it cannot be effectively argued that Rommel was a fan of Hitler, that Rommel was a staunch, unquestioning supporter of Hitler. It really wasn't only until 1942 and 43 when Rommel, that, that Rommel began to really take a close look at who and what Hitler was. And when he finally did that, the disillusionment was, for Rommel, ground shaking. No, I think that's extremely overlooked when talking about just Germany during World War II. You know, of course, we all know the atrocities committed by Hitler and his inner circle and his, his you know, as well as just the, the Nazis in general. But in 1939 and in the years leading up to the war, nobody knew that. So I think that's something extremely overlooked. But, you know, I think Rommel is best known for his successful military campaigns as leader of the Africa Corps uh, during World War II. Uh, of course, he served in the German army earlier in the war, but he's best known as leader of the Africa Corps in North Africa. So what sort of military victories earned him that name when he served in North Africa? And you know, how did he earn his title, the Desert Fox? One of the interesting aspects of, of Rommel's career in the Western Desert, as it was called, which included Egypt, Libya. Uh, Libya then was the Italian colony of Kairakanika, uh, and Tripoli, the, uh, 
or Tripolitania specifically. Uh, the the thing about Rommel being sent to North Africa was that nothing was expected of him. He was not expected to to win any great victories. Uh, he was not supposed to take the offensive against the, the, the British at all. He was sent there as the commander of a blocking force, a, a light division and a collection of ad hoc units who were given the mission of uh, bolstering and supporting the Italian forces that, quite frankly, had just gotten kicked in the pants as hard, just about as hard as possible, uh, a few months before, uh, in uh, in in uh, late nineteen uh, in in or excuse me in nineteen forty, by uh, a British force that was outnumbered a good ten to one. Uh, the the British advance across uh, Libya, out of Egypt, and across Libya uh, to a position near El Algila. Uh, in Western Libya, Western Karnika, was a um, it was a masterpiece of planning, of mobile warfare, of uh, applying the the lessons of what has popularly become known as Blitzkrieg um, against the Italians. Uh, the Italians were, were they were utterly confused again as they had been in the first, where the Italian soldiers were very poorly led. The, uh, the there were tremendous social gulfs between the Italian enlisted men and Italian officers. Uh, a tremendous resentment between the enlisted men and officers. Uh, there was quite often a distinct atmosphere of contempt on the part of off, of, of Italian officers for their enlisted personnel. And quite frankly, if you look at the record, the senior Italian the senior Italian officers, their generals, uh, weren't terribly bright. They were they were appointed more for political reliability than they were for their competence, and they got their bahookies kicked. So, in the space of two months, the Germans, excuse me, the British had driven the Italians from the Egyptian border almost all the way to the Tripolitanian border, hundreds of miles. Captured over a hundred thousand Italian POWs, completely wrecked the Italian army in North Africa, and left the British advance continued. They had to be stopped. So Operation Sonnenblum, which is Operation Sunflower, was conceived whereby a German light panzer division and some ancillary units would be sent to El Algila to block any further British advance. They were not supposed to take the offensive against the British. Not taking the offensive was something that did not sit well with Rommel. He really didn't like waiting for the other guy to make his move. He saw an opportunity. The British forces had been uh, heavily drawn down and sent north to Crete and Greece in uh, February and March of 1941, uh, when the Italians and then the Wehrmacht uh, attacked Albania and subsequently Greece. And so Rommel perceived that there was a weakness in the British Western Desert forces. There was an opportunity for him to go on the offensive, and he did. He hit hard. He hit fast. Uh, he had a lot to learn about combat in the desert, especially uh, in terms of logistics, but he learned quickly. Now, he wasn't an ideal leader. This is the thing that, that needs to be remembered about Rommel is, is that he's not 
uh, you know, un chevalier sans pareil, uh, sans pure. He's he, he's not the knight without without parallel and without peer. The man has flaws. He was egotistical as hell. Uh, he was he was vain. He would go out in the desert in full uniform. I I mean tunic, wool tunic, wool shirt, wool jodhpurs, you know, knee high leather boots. And the, the the heat is strong enough is 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 high enough to fry an egg on a, on a tank hull. But by golly, he's going to look the part of a German general because his vanity demands that he that he do so. There were a few instances where he ordered very very rash attacks, uh, in which he took knee casualty, casualties and saw his attacks repulsed. However, what Rommel did was he learned by experience. He also saw those. Um, opportunities and weaknesses in British organization and British policies, both doctrinal and operational, that he was able to exploit. So he moved fast. He hit hard wherever and whenever he could. But it was movement that was his stock and trade. When he could outflank a British position, uh, when he could move through or move past the, the, the British rather than engage them uh, in in a head-to-head battle, he would wind up disorganizing the British uh, supply chains, their communications network, and leave the forces that he had left behind in chaos because the British lacked the doctrinal and organizational flexibility to make up for uh, the disruptions that his forces caused. One of the keys to the German advance, not just in North Africa, but on every front where the Germans fought, was they had an excellent communications network. They could communicate verbally as well as laterally, not just with a unit could not just talk to uh, units that were below it in the organization, but they could talk to uh, their parent unit. And if need be, they could talk to units on either on either flank. So they could coordinate their movements to a much greater degree than their opponents could. This allowed much quicker reaction times and flexibility in responding to uh, rapidly unfolding tactical situations. Rommel made the most of that whenever he could. Now, he, he made blunders. He tried to capture the force of Tobruk, which had the, the Italians uh, had uh, reinforced had and fortified uh, prior to the beginning of the war, and they did a damn good job at it. Did never underestimate the Italians when it comes um, to military engineering. They're some of the best in the world. And their defenses around Tobruk were, were excellent, and the British were able to, in holding the fortress, were able to use those defenses to the maximum. They, they had entire, apparently barren fields or uh, barren stretches of terrain that there wasn't a, a, a uh, visible enemy position in sight for miles. But because the positions that existed were so carefully constructed and concealed, it wasn't until an enemy attacked them that and got among those positions. The defenses of Tobruk were so good that the British were able to utilize them to uh, their maximum effectiveness. Uh, the anti-tank ditch, the anti-personnel fences, the, um, the, the artillery sightings. There were positions around Tobruk that looked like they were completely empty, devoid of life, no no enemy troops visible or present. The reason was the defensive bunkers were so skillfully sighted and camouflaged that it wouldn't be until enemy troops were among them and being subjected to crossfire and pre-registered artillery fire that they realized that they had went into a trap. Uh, 
this happened on more than occasion in Rommel's initial attempt to uh, to to take Tobruk in April 1991. Uh, he then essentially blockaded Tobruk and tried to drive farther east, but and won a number of victories against the British, even though he was numerically outclassed and really didn't have a large, uh, significant advantage in terms of the weaponry that he had. But again, because he was able to strike at British communications and British uh, supply lines, he was able to disrupt the plans and movements and ability of British units to to talk to each other and coordinate their own actions, uh, and was still able to a very great degree coordinate the movement of his own troops. The British were very often forced to retreat simply out of helplessness, not because they had suffered crippling casualties, but because their units were isolated and unable to uh, to mutually support each other. So this was this again was one of his advantages. Now. Rommel was also aided by having some very uh, adept and uh, talented subordinates. In fact, one of his one of his best subordinates was uh, General Thomas Croyle, who was one of those type of generals who believes that victory comes from inflicting the maximum number of losses on the enemy. And together, Croyle and Rommel made a very very potent combination. Rommel would strike at the enemy brain. Croyvel was at the enemy's strength. So together, it was like a one-two punch, and they, they worked extremely well in, in hand. They didn't always get along that well. Again, Rommel's ego very often got in the way of good relationships with his, with, with, with his, uh, his general officers and some of his senior colonels. But when it came to combat, they always seemed to find a way to, to win battles until they reached point at El Alamein, where the disparity in strength and disparity in supply capability between what the Allies were able to produce and field and what the Germans were able to muster became so great that Rommel ultimately was written down through sheer attrition, not because Bernard Law Montgomery was a superior general, far from it, but he was just able to inflict losses at a rate that the Germans could not accept and take losses while still maintaining his own material superiority. Yes. The Desert Fox, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Rommel was really respected by the British and French troops in, in North Africa, even though they were enemies. Is that correct? It wouldn't be too far from the truth to say that Rommel was so adept at moving quickly, unexpectedly, and striking in areas where it was believed that he was unable to reach war. A conventional military was said he shouldn't be there. That there was a whole vernacular developed in the British Western Death Force, which eventually became the Eighth Army, about Rommel. When, when someone did something particularly, when a Tommy would do something particularly clever, uh, the slang was that he'd done Rommel. Field Marshal Al- Cloud Alcon, who, no, who was no so slow coach himself at handling and uh, and desert warfare, uh, actually had to issue an order of the day in which he urged his men, let's not turn Rommel into a boogeyman. Uh, he's not superhuman. He's good, but let's not make him out to be better than he is. Rommel was getting under Alkenleck's skin the same way that he was getting under the skin of, of his opponents. Uh, so yes, there was, a, there was an element of respect. Uh, even Churchill, at one point uh, in a war cabinet meeting, he's, he was pounding the table saying, Rommel, 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 what else matters but being him? And 
in the House of Commons at one point, he rose and he said, we in, in, in Western Desert, we are opposed by a uh, very skillful opponent, and if I may be allowed to say so, a great general of war. But there was an psychological warfare in this because the the British knew once that the once that American support, logistical support had been secured, and especially once American participation in the uh, had been secured subsequent to uh, December 1941, that the logistical side of the war was going to swing in their favor. Sooner they would be able to bring superior numbers, superior firepower to bear in, in such quantities that the Germans would be able to effectively conquer. So, in a sense, Churchill was kind of set up to be even greater than he was as a commander. So when he was ultimately defeated, the magnitude of the British victory would appear to be that much more significant. It was similar in a way to the propaganda campaign that the Germans had, or the, the British had mounted in May of 1941 about the German battleship Bismarck. Uh, there really wasn't anything that special about Bismarck. I'm going to catch a lot of flack from experts and armchair generals and admirals for saying this. Bismarck was uh, really a very, very average battleship, but because of the action against Hood, where she sank with her second or third salvo, and it was a devastating loss to the Royal Navy, the, German, the British began to paint the German battleship Bismarck as being some sort of super ship, so that when eventually it was sunk, the British victory would appear to be that much more significant. Well, a similar process being applied versus Rommel in the in, in Western Desert. At the same time, during and after the war, uh, a consistent theme through uh, the Allied senior senior leaders, French, British, American, was one of respect for Rommel. Uh, he fought a clean war. He was recognized as being a skilled tactician and operational leader. And as the war went on, his strategic talents grew as well. Uh, one of the things that is often overlooked about Rommel's command of the festival in, uh, or not the festival, but the Atlantic Wall in uh, in, in uh, Normandy in 1944 was that if Rommel's plans for defenses of the Atlantic coast had, re- had fully reached fruition, if all of the mines and obstacles that uh, he had intended to in place, all of the units that he had planned on deploying had been available, D-Day would have, D-Day would have been over the first day. It, it would have been, to Trommel's phrase, the longest day, and the invasion would have been a mass failure. So he had uh, his strategic abilities matured as the war went on, and were recognized by Allied leadership uh, as such as well. But it was it was Rommel's ability as a tactician and an operational commander, as well as his um, his basic decency as a leader, that uh, was was recognized both during and after the war. So. After Rommel was defeated in North Africa at the Battle of Al Alamein, what happened next? Where else did he serve and in what notable engagement? It's really interesting to me that, you know, most of Hitler's uh, really good generals, you know, Manstein and, and Guderian were stationed on the Eastern Front, but, but Rommel wasn't. He was, um, you know, put in charge of other battles and other engagements. So, I, and this is kind of a question itself, you know, why did Hitler do that? Did he feel Rommel was all that he needed in the West and in North Africa? Well, let me, um, let me give a brief encapsulation of Rommel's career. Keep in mind that concurrent with the Battle 
just west of Alexandria, uh, at, at, in at El Alamein, Egypt, that Rommel was fighting with Montgomery. American forces were landing in Algiers, opposite end of, of the of, of the continent, at the western end of the continent, with the idea of driving eastward as Montgomery would drive westward, and they would sandwich Rommel and the Africa Corps. By then, it was Panzer Army Africa between the two of them, uh, and defeated in detail. What was going on there was Rommel recognized that city holding space occupying ground in North Africa was strategically worth it. There were a limited number of geographical objectives that were worth fighting for. Tobruk was one of them. Uh, Alexandria and Carbon Egypt were another. Uh, Benghazi, to a lesser extent, uh, Tripoli and Tripolitania uh, were also, um, and, and Tunisia were, uh, were the primary geographic objectives. They were what you had to fight for. So Rommel realized as soon as the 8th Army broke through at El Alamein, standing and fighting was a waste of time, material, and most importantly, lives. He began what some of his critics were a headlong retreat uh, to the West. There were plenty of, the, his critics will describe that how there were plenty of blocking positions where he could have delayed uh, the advance of the army, but there was no place between El Alamein and Tripolitania. We're talking about 1,500 miles. There was no place where Rommel could stop the Eighth Army. No place that he could keep them from outflanking him and advancing further. So slowing them down accomplished nothing except again wasting more lives, wasting more material, and most of all, wasting time. Because keep in mind, while Rommel is retreating to the west, the Americans are advancing eastward. And sooner or later, the Africa Corps and the Sir Army Africa and the Italian Army are going to get caught in between these two Allied forces, 8th Army uh, under Montgomery and the Allied, that is combined British and American forces, under Eisenhower in the west. So Rommel moved as moved west as far as he could and wound up engaging in uh, engaging the 8th Army and the uh, forces under Eisenhower in Tunisia. His, theory, his thinking was as long as he could keep a front going on, on North African soil, he would prevent the Allies from staging an invasion of Southern Europe, an invasion of Italy, an invasion of Southern France, an invasion of the Balkans, and it would be strategically worth, worthwhile holding, maintaining a foothold in Tunisia. He fought uh, a series of rearguard actions, fought the very, very successful, from the German perspective, uh, Battle of Kasserine Pass, uh, the first time that the British and, or excuse me, the Germans and the Americans met in combat. And not to put not to put too fine a point, the Americans got spent process through, through their own inadequacies, through incompetent leadership, and uh, through superior German fighting ability. Uh, the Americans were very green, and as often happens with green troops, they, when they met seasoned combat veterans, uh, they came out very, very much second best. So the problem, though, was Hitler did not share this same vision, and he refused, even though he seemed to pour reinforcements in North Africa, his heart was never really in it. Eventually, he pulled Rommel out of North Africa in March 1941, sent him to Italy to organize the, the defense of, of Italy because he really, he, 
this case Hitler, realized that sooner or later the Allies would land on the Italian peninsula. Rommel had had a very interesting and usually positive relationship with his Italian troops in North Africa. His attitude towards Italian leadership was uniformly contemptuous, however. And it was in, he was in Rome in, in late 1943 after having spent the better part of two years accusing the Italians of deliberately denying supplies to the Italian and German forces in North Africa. Rommel found enormous caves full of very supplies that he had been demanding. The Italians had refused to send to him. This was all the proof that he needed that, that the Italian leaders, not the Italian people, the Italian soldiers, but the Italian leadership couldn't be trusted. Prickly relations between Rommel and the Italians just degenerated in mutual contempt. Eventually, uh, Hitler pulled Rommel out of Africa and gave him command west of, of the Atlantic Wall. Uh, basically, the masses uh, in um, on the Atlantic coast from uh, the Dutch Belgian or the the, the, me, the the Dutch German border on the north, all the way down to the French German border, the Pyrenees and the Bay of Biscay. And this was how Rommel came to be on the West Wall. Another aspect of Rommel's personality, and it illustrates the fact that Rommel was comfortably uh, individual himself, was he was openly contemptuous of the uh, German aristocratic offices with the funds in their names. He felt that simply by right of birth, uh, they were vouchsafed all the necessary knowledge to successfully fight Warfare. He was assured over and over again, despite Rommel having first-hand experience with the immense material superiority that the Americans and the British were able to feel uh, in terms of air power, armor, uh, artillery, especially artillery. He was told by German generals who had done all of their fighting on the front that his concerns about the capabilities of American air power and American artillery in combat uh, were completely unfounded, and that whatever had worked in Russia would be equally successful in France facing the Anglo-American forces that would eventually uh, land in France. And Rommel, was, he was dumbfounded. How could these, these, these men who were supposed to be professionals be so blind? I was there. I saw what the American artillery can do, what Allied air power can do, what the anglo American material support is like it dwarfs anything that you've experienced on the Eastern Front against the Russians. These people are far more competent than the Russians will ever hope to be, and you think that what works outside of Kharkov is going to work trying to keep the British and Americans out of Paris. I'm sorry, it ain't going to happen that way. So Rommel came up with a strategy of defeating the Anglo-American invasion at water's edge, literally the longest day strategy, that stop, we don't even allow the Allies to get a beachhead of the, the tiniest toehold uh, on, the, on the continent, because once they do, they will bring their material, material superiority in ways that we will never stop. We will run out of men, we will run out of tanks, our Air Force will be impotent, and they will roll over us. Ultimately, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, that's really interesting, and especially interesting points about the the allies and their capabilities as well uh, whether it be the united states artillery which they were very much an artillery army uh, during world war ii as well as the combined air power but now transitioning 
to sort of a, a, a sadder, more difficult time. Rommel's death. Uh, many of you listening know how Rommel did die, but I want to explore it in detail right now. How and why did Rommel die, and what were the events leading up to his suicide? First of all, it has to be understood that the idea that Rommel was part of the July 20th, 1944 uh, assassination conspiracy, the von Stauffenberg bomb plot, is Operation Valkyrie, is is a myth. Rommel was never part of it. Rommel would not countenance assassination. Again, you're getting back into this aspect of Rommel being a patriot. Rommel understood, however unsavory, however, let's just be blunt, however despicable the Nazi regime was, it was still the duly duly constituted government of Germany to eliminate the head of state through an assassination was, to Rommel's mindset, an act of treason. It was not something he could countenance because a patriot does not commit treason against his own nation. The whole mythos of Rommel being part of the 20th of July attentat came post-war at the hands of one of his junior officers, Ashvidel, who was actually the plot and try and talked around at times the idea of eliminating Hitler with Rommel. And never really, and was never really given a positive answer. Although he assumed he, being Spidel, assumed that once the assassination was an accomplished fact, that Rommel would come aboard on it. Now, after the war, when in the early 1950s the Allies were beginning to consider the idea of reviving uh, the German armed forces, in this case, under the West German government. Uh, creating the Bundeswehr, creating a, a, a new uh, German Luftwaffe, uh, to be full allies in participating in defense of Western Europe against possible Soviet aggression, uh, both the Soviets and the Warsaw Pact, uh, via the Iron Curtain East-West confrontation that became known as the Cold, the Cold War. Speidel was one of the leading candidates for a senior officer's position. The reason being was that he was politically clean. By being part of the the July 20th bomb plot, having been arrested, having been imprisoned, and quite frankly surviving through what amounted to a clerical error, uh, he was not tainted with the uh, with, with Nazi guilt. So to bolster his position, knowing how popular Rommel was at the time among the the British, American, and even French uh, leadership, leadership, he started to burnish his own reputation by, via association with Rommel. And he made Rommel out to be a co-conspirator so that his own position could look stronger. See, I was marching hand-in-hand with this German general that all of you admired. Now, I have to fudge a little bit about this general's reputation, but if it makes me look good, I'll do it. This was Hans Spidel. Right. Man was a weasel. I'm going to be blunt about it. The man was a weasel. But the point being is that Rommel himself never had knowledge of uh, assassination attempt, never had knowledge of the uh, 
uh, the, the the broader conspiracy, uh, whatever he may have heard through the grapevine, which could or could not have been reliable. He had no way of knowing. And Rommel was not, he was not going to turn in, he, he was not going to announce fellow officers based on hearsay, based on rumor, based on gossip. He wasn't going to do that. So the bomb plot failed. We all know this. What happened, though, was that Speidel, whether deliberately or inadvertently, um, implicated Rommel in the plot. There were seven investigations by the Gestapo, none of which produced positive proof or even strong strong indications or implications of Rommel's involvement uh, in the bomb plot. And no arrest order was issued to uh, issued for Rommel based on his participation in July 20th assassination attempt. However, Rommel had made one fatal mistake. That mistake was not in participating in a tyrannicide plot. It was the fact that in late June and early July 1944, he spoke very bluntly to Adolf Hitler and said, we cannot win this war. It's time to make peace. In Hitler's twisted mindset, any acknowledgement, recognition of that reality, that war was well and truly lost, was tantamount to defeatism. So Raleigh had to be punished for that. I remember that on July 17, 1944, Raleigh's car was strafed by a British Spitfire. Uh, the car was heavily damaged, thrown off the road. Raleigh was uh, severely injured, suffered a massive concussion, Serious damage to his uh, skull, a, a uh, significant even life skull fracture. Uh, for a while, lost vision in his in his, uh, in his left eye, and so was automatically uh, put on the inactive list of German officers. He was medically unavailable. When he was finally pronounced fit to return to duty, there was no place for him. No commands were given to him, despite the fact that he was still. He was still Erwin Rommel. He was still a, a, a very talented and, quite frankly, inspiring leader. This is because Hitler was convinced that Rommel was a defeatist. And as he saw it, now was an opportunity, now being post-July 20th, while all the other tricks uh, within the German officer corps were being, clear, being cleared up and eliminated, now was an opportunity to, um, to deal with Rommel. Now, keep in mind that Rommel's fate was significantly different than all of those other German officers who were found to be complicit in the July 20th assassination attempt. Those who didn't commit suicide uh, prior to their arrest, when arrested, were tried by uh, the Volkswagen to the People's Court, which at the time was tampered to a, uh, to a guilt verdict and accompanying death sentence. They were stripped of their rank. They were uh, kicked out of the army. They were allowed to be arrested and uh, interrogated, which means tortured, by the Gestapo. And then present in front of the people's court and simply found guilty and executed. Rommel, on the other hand, suffered none of those indignities. He was given a choice. He could report to Berlin uh, where he would be, and this choice was given to him on 14th of October, 1944. He could be, he could report Berlin wherein he would be accused, um, not of participation in the July 20th 
bomb plot, but of treason against the Reich. Or he could take his own life. <clears throat> or he could take his own life. In which case, no action would be taken um, against his family. Now, there was a doctrine um, called Sippenhaft, which means guilt by association, which broadly applied to the families of the men who had participated in the July 20 assassination attempt. The families were imprisoned, uh, usually under the harshest conditions possible, packed off to concentration camps. In some, in some cases, they were, were killed outright. Uh, but Rommel was given an assurance that no action would be taken against uh, his family if he chose to take his own life. This was the choice that he was given. It wasn't much choice. So he knew um, about noon on October 15th, 1944, that he was going to die that afternoon. And he chose to, in order to protect his family, his wife and his young son, Fred, uh, who was, I believe, 16 at the time, uh, to protect them, he chose suicide. But it was not because he had participated in the attempt to kill Adolf Hitler. It was for something that, in the view of Adolf Hitler, was far worse than an assassination attempt, by a far greater degree of treason. Rommel had tried to tell the truth to Adolf Hitler, and by the summer of 1944, the truth was something that Hitler could no longer recognize. And the result was that because he tried to be truthful, he was trying to save Germany, what he could of Germany, that Rommel was planted at a feast, and in guise, defeatism was even worse than uh, attempt, an attempt on his life. Because, as Hitler saw it, Rommel was now a defeatist. Rommel had to die. How ironic that, uh, I mean, ironic, but at the same time, that's literally the only decision Rommel had was to take his own life, that this great, daring, brilliant military commander had to die not under fire. I think that's that's very ironic. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for taking the time to be on the show today. I will certainly uh, put a link to your book, Field Marshal, The Life and Death of Erwin Rommel, in the description below. And for all of you listening, I, I really encourage you to pick up a copy of this book. I am a connoisseur of military history books and Good ones are hard to come by these days, but I can promise you this one you will not regret buying. Again, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for kind words, Noah. Thank you for inviting me to participate with you. Uh, it's been a pleasure from start to finish. Thank you all so much for listening to Stories of the Second World War. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform and consider leaving a positive rating and review. You can also find the podcast at storiesofthesecondworldwar.com with more information about the show. Thanks so much for listening. Join us here again next week.